This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Beyond the Wall, a memoir. And the author is Dolores Cross. And this iUniverse Radio segment is brought to you by Westbow Press. Hello, Dolores. Hello, Steve. How are you? Good to have you with us. Now, this obviously is beyond the wall. Here you are, a marathon lady who has run a lot of marathons, and we all know about the wall and the marathon, and there's another story running alongside you as you run this marathon, a true story about you hitting a wall, too, that was completely fabricated where you were literally found guilty in some sort of way with embezzlement at a college concerning student financial uh, records, and it was uh, devastating, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And, you know, one of the things I often say, you know, I kept, in, 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 in deciding to write the, my memoir, I kept in mind the uh, old African adage, until the lion tells his story, the hunter will always be the victor. And there's been so much distortion and slanted coverage so that... Um, the fundamental intention for me, um, pushing forward with the memoir, is, is to speak to the truth of my being innocent of charges of embezzlement, of student financial aid funds, and of conspiracy to commit fraud in my capacity of president of a historically black college. I've never been interviewed to give my side of the story, and writing the memoir became a way for you know, for me to uh, you know to speak to what happened, and then also how I emerged even stronger, and of also an encouragement to others that may hit a similar wall in their lives that they can get through that they can climb over it or whatever it takes. You certainly are a great example of that. Let's kind of go back, though. Let's kind of go back to your very beginnings. Uh, you have came out of a uh, a very poor childhood, a poverty. Yeah, well, um, I, I was born in, in, I mean, I was raised in Newark, New Jersey's housing projects, and I think our family was one of the first families to move into the housing projects. And what I do in the the book, uh, in the memoir, which is very important from, for me, I look back at the strength that I gained from those roots. You know, I don't see myself as a victim. I see myself, uh, you know, someone raised by a very strong mother. We went through very difficult times. We were evicted from the housing project. We were homeless for a period of time. I went to work when I was at, uh, 14, married very young. And managed to complete my undergraduate degree and ultimately a PhD, and um, married and had you know two children. 
And then I, I, I look at that as a figurative marathon. You know, that journey from the housing projects to various positions all over the country, uh, to a university presidency at Chicago State, and finally to uh, the position at a historically black college in Atlanta, um, the Morris Brown College. So I, you know, I trace that journey, but those roots, those, you know, that struggle that we went through uh, very early, you know, growing up really shaped my values in terms of resilience and endurance. And I had to, you know, during this period, I had to go back to that you know, to find that strength, to tap into it again. Otherwise, I, you know, uh, that was a very, very important part of, of my writing and merging on my feet. So I talk about that in, in the memoir, like who is this woman? You know, that, you know, going beyond the sound bites, who is this woman? And what would motivate her after everything she's done to, um, to take the risk? You know, I left a safe position to take a risk and to uh, become the president of a financially fragile college. So the scrutiny was extremely tight, and somehow it looked like, at least it was reported, that you had literally embezzled millions of dollars. Yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting because that was reported in the Associated Press, and then later on, uh, it wasn't until 2008, it was uncovered that, okay, there was, and that was erroneous reporting that was picked up by the Associated Press, but it went all over the country, you know, um, uh, which, in fact, what did happen is that uh, given the media's rush judgment and the hostile environment and the fact that the director of student financial aid who admitted that you know there was some wrongdoing and he but he became the government star witness saying that okay you know I uh, I had told him to do it and and the government not realizing that it had the case that it had at the indictment picked up on that but given the climate I took a plea and the basis of the plea said that after the letter came in from the government, I, you know, $25,000 went to the operating expenses of the school. And as president, I should have maybe checked to see if everybody was doing what, what they were supposed to do. But the $25,000, so it was only about $25,000 that were mis, uh, a misapplication of $25,000. And, uh, the government, and looked over all of my records for two years and agreed in court that I did not benefit one penny. But because of the sensationalism, because it had gone, you know, so far, I was sentenced to a year of house arrest, six months in electronic bracelet, 500 hours of community service, five years of, of uh, probation, and $13,000 that I had to pay back to the government. So it was, um, uh, you know, I, what, what I say in looking back at it, that um, I, was, um, I was caught in fear, you know, that you know, I, I've never been so afraid. You know, I grew up at a time when I saw so many things happening, you know, 
to people in terms of the civil rights movement, et cetera. And uh, what, uh, what was presented to me that if I went to trial and I was convicted on, you know, any of these counts, I could spend 10 years in a federal prison with no option of, of parole. So in the memoir, I describe, you know, growing up, you know, moving ahead, and my life literally coming to a halt when confronted with uh, the FBI investigation, the grand jury indictment, the media's rush to judgment, you know, people saying, well, if the government accused her of something, she must have done something wrong. And the silence of people, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, again, uh, you know, if, 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 if the government is saying this and if, if the headlines are saying embezzlement, there must be, there must be something that happened without looking at, okay, the situation in terms of the longstanding problems at the college, you know, the fact that the Department of Education was always there monitoring. And I never got a report from an external auditor that there was criminal wrongdoing. But, but you know, these things I, you know, I, you know, I try to, you know, explain in the memoir without playing the blame game. I'm not blaming anyone. I'm just, you know, telling my story in terms of, of the clarity that I gain. And then how I dealt with the situation and, and came out of the depths of despair. How you deal is really what's beyond the wall, right? Right. And that's really the message of the book. You know, a wall can appear at any time for anyone. What matters most is how you deal with it. You know, that is seen, you know, seen beyond the wall. And, you know, that's what, you know, it's not a pity party. I'm not trying to say, you know, oh, poor Dolores. You know, I've, I've, I've gained greater clarity, you know, from the crisis for me came an opportunity to, you know, to really learn where my strength came from. To really, you know, uh, I, in, in the memoir I talk about my flaws. What did I do wrong? Was I so busy looking ahead that I didn't look around? You know, I, you know, it's, it's like every day, you know, would replay in my, in, in my mind, looking at, you know, what happened. And I, and I think the, uh, the memoir for, for me, it's important for, you know, you know, people to, you know, to understand, almost have a map for how you deal with crisis. You know, it's very candid. It tells my emotion. It talks about, I got so low, I thought about suicide. I mean, how did I come out of that? You know, what were the, um, what became the safety net for me? It must have been very humiliating to have to wear that electronic monitoring bracelet because you would literally have to use it to, uh, to respond to phone calls, right? Right. Well, well, what what would happen? Well, the book begins with me at, at two o'clock in the morning. I get a call from house house arrest asking me who I am and where was I, and uh, to press the button on my uh, on the electronic bracelet, and that would happen periodically. 
Well, what was most painful for me, I remember that my great-grandfather was a slave, shackled. And, you know, I just felt, you know, um, I felt shackled. I was restrained in terms of I could only go out uh, three hours a day, a Saturday for shopping, Sunday to go to the church. And so I felt um, detached, disconnected. I felt a certain amount of shame. Now, how could I explain this? It, um, you know, you hear it so much, you begin to think, well, what did I do wrong? You know, you begin to believe the rhetoric, you know, that, you know, that you did something wrong. And so, I mean, just, um, but then realizing that what I did, you know, ultimately is to, is to accept responsibility. I was the president of the college, but I did not. I was not involved in any conspiracy with the director of student financial aid. I did not take any money that was not mine. I did not steal one dime. And the government and that, also admitted that. But in, in any way, you were still but, yeah, prosecuted right. for it and, and right. obviously penalized for it. Right. You know, because, yeah, right. I was, I was, and then you see what happened over the course of time. Time, various theories began to be concocted in terms of how I, you know, how I might have done it, how I might have been involved. So I talk about that because I'm trying to see, part of me is trying to see what are, you know, how are they connecting the dots? You know, that frustration, you know, how is the government connecting the, the dots? You know, how do I, um, you know, how do I, you know, deal with this, especially when um, it's a revered historically black college. You have people who are being interviewed, you know, said, well, the president knew everything about what was going on at the college. The board of trustees don't speak up in, an, in any kind of, of, you know, definitive way. No one talks about the fact that when I came to the college and saw that, you know, there were problems financially, I, I got an outside grant to pay my salary for two years. The college didn't have to pay me. So, you know, you know but all of these things did not come out. You know, the, the, the image was, uh, was, was paying that I was motivated by my ego to, to, to get things moving that I would um, uh, be involved in some conspiracy with the college's director of student financial aid. And so, but, you know, it's, um, again, what, what I get concerned about, you know, as I wrote the book, you know, I've, I've, been, uh, I've been faculty at various, you know, colleges. I've always urged students to, to go where they are needed, where they think they can make a difference. At the same time, I realize even more that there are risks in this regulatory environment that some of these, uh, you know, people work the way they've always worked despite the change in regulations. They don't have the infrastructure to comply, but the regulations are one size fits all. So, you know, you're... You know, there is that concern if everybody's on the same marathon team. 
So, so there is, you know, there is some risk, yet at the same time. So in my um, um, uh, memoir, I talk about lessons learned. And that's so the most that, important thing, that we learn right. these lessons beyond the wall. As you say, a wall can appear at any time for anyone. What matters most is how you deal with it. That is seeing what right. lies beyond the wall. Right. Well, tell us how to get your book, please. Tell us how to get your okay. book, Dolores. This is the most exciting part. Okay, you can order it through Westbo, you know, you know, publisher. And, um, you know, you can just look up um, westbow.com, Westbow Press, Westbow Press, under, you know, self, you know, publishing. It's also going to be available through amazon.com. And uh, uh, I I also think Barnes & Noble's. Uh, So it's, um, it's out there. It's live. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dolores, for being on iUniverse Radio with this special edition brought to our listeners by Westbow Press. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Okay. Thank you very much. That was Dolores Cross. She is the author of her book, Beyond the Wall, a memoir. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriend at Principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, Girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Shogun Iamitsu, 
War and Romance in 17th Century Togugawa, Japan. And the author is Michael R. Zamber. And Michael joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Michael. Hello. Well, great to have you here. Uh, a very in-depth, well, it's it takes us right into the samurai culture of Japan. What would you say, well, you say the 17th century, so back into the 1600s of the samurai culture, and you write this. This fascinating historical novel offers a unique window into life and love in feudal Japan. There is no more interesting figure in history than that of the legendary samurai and shogun Iemitsu reveals samurai life and all of its glorious complexity. I think most of us are fascinated with the samurai because I guess it's just so mysterious to Westerners, and yet this was a very, very real uh, historical figure, and that's what your novel, it's based on historical fact, but of course it's fiction, so you are revealing the time through fiction, but based on historical fact. Why write this? My goodness, what a complex story, Michael. Why write it? Well, one might ask, you know, why didn't Herman Melville write Moby Dick? Because uh, through the, the complexity lies the, the story, the story of this most interesting period and people whose lives were defined by concepts which are hard to grasp, like honor and loyalty. These people were honorable and loyal to a fault. They would die for their honor, and their loyalty to their lords was such that they would gladly die for him as well. And the concept is just so close to Christianity and the concept that Jesus propounded, which was that one had to lose one's life in order to gain it. And this is the essence of samurai thinking. So it's not as far from Western culture as one might think. Well, that usually is evident when we dig into the, the bottom line living and thinking of, of cultures that, uh, for the most part, people are striving for the best, for excellence. And here the samurai uh, is tied to a point in history where you have a conflict between Christianity and Buddhism. Absolutely. But it was a conflict that was more political than spiritual because the, the two, if they're practiced in their essence, are almost consonant. I mean, they both emphasize humility, service, dignity, and honor. But because of political ends... They were made, the one was suppressed and the other was raised up to be the relig official religion of Japan. Although, just before the early 17th century, Christianity was the predominant religion in Japan. And it was government supported, but that changed because they were concerned that the religion was so popular that the foreign influences, the Jesuits and the Spanish and the uh, Portuguese, would 
take over the country, as they had done in South America. And the Japanese were not unaware of this. Tokugawa shogunal authorities decided that uh, Christianity would eventually overthrow their government. So your book appeals, as you say, to the purists and at the same time can be enjoyed by the layman. I believe that's absolutely the case. And I think that it's an extremely good read for the layman. There's a extensive glossary at the back of the book, and the layman will learn so much about Japanese culture, weapons, armor, samurai, that uh, I think it would well repay the layman. I think they would enjoy it just as layman enjoyed James Clavell's Shogun, only I believe Shogun Iemitsu goes far further in accurately portraying Japanese culture during the Tokugawa era. We have two young samurais, or the main characters, the the heroes, or are they in conflict? They are best friends. I mean, this is basically, at one level, a buddy novel. Hideo is the illegitimate grandson of one of the great Japanese rulers, Oda Nobunaga, and his friend Kobayashi is basically a second-generation samurai, samurai being minor nobility, and they are just the best of friends. And there's little conflict between them on the surface. There's some internal conflict because Kobayashi is a Buddhist and Hideo is a kakure or hidden Christian. So Hideo is always very careful to preserve his outward Buddhism while maintaining his inward Christianity, and this is a conflict within him. But as far as conflict between he and Kobayashi, they're no more than the normal give and take between two best friends. Now, are they related to the Shogun? The Tokugawa Shogun is actually concerned. Shogun Iemitsu is concerned that that Hideo will become a figurehead for people seeking to overthrow the shogunate because his grandfather, Nobunaga Oda, was not a Tokugawa. So there's concern, but Hideo, being illegitimate, makes very little of his ancestry. And then, of course, there is also conflict with Hideo and the daughter of the Lord of the Province. Lord Arima's daughter, Mariko, and Hideo were very much in love, and then her father, who wanted to marry her off to one of the shogun's sons, told her to either break off the relationship or marry Hideo and be disinherited. So Mariko chose the former and broke off the relationship. But Hideo is still very much in love with her, although he's trying to forget her. So is the uh, lord of the province, is, is he the antagonist? The Lord of the Province is one of the antagonists, but he's primarily an antagonist to the Shogun. He's not an antagonist to Hideo and Kobayashi, who are soldiers in his service and live in the barracks. So who is the other antagonist? The other antagonist is Shogun Iemitsu himself, who has spies reporting to him on a monthly basis about Hideo, because any descendant of Nobunaga is a potential threat to the shogunate. 
in this particular province, Kyushu province was the scene of the most serious threat to the Tokugawa shogunate, the Shimabara Rebellion, which was a rebellion led by a Christian boy, Amakusa Shiro, who thought that Christianity was the way and refused to accept the Tokugawa suppression of the religion. So there's a real struggle for loyalty. There is a tremendous struggle for loyalty. I mean, there's loyalty to Arima, there's loyalty to family, there's loyalty to the shogunate, and there's loyalty to one's God. And all of these are in conflict in this novel. How does Hideo keep his Christianity a secret? He locks it within his heart. He cannot worship openly. If he did, he would be executed immediately. So there are there suspicions? There are not overt suspicion, because overtly he's a very, very good Buddhist. He was sent to a Buddhist abbey for his educa- early education, and reports were sent to the shogunate that uh, showed that he was not a Christian, that he was a Buddhist. But when he goes into the Buddhist temple and looks at the statue of the Buddha, he does not think of worshipping the Buddha, he thinks of worshipping the Christ. So it all goes on in his heart and his mind, and he must be very careful not to use Christian terms. And there are times in the novel when he slips up and he's wondering to himself, did I really say something that incriminates me? Does his best friend know? Kobayashi does not know, and if he did know, he would probably have some problems with it. Not because he would not tolerate and love Hideo, but because of the mortal danger that it would place both of them in. I mean, even the suspicion of being a Christian would be enough for somebody to be denounced and executed. Every year, the Japanese had to perform the Fumie ceremony, which meant a renunciation of Christianity, where publicly one had to stamp on the image of the Virgin Mary or an image of Christ and say, I am not a Christian. How would you describe your novel? Uh, There's certainly action scenes in it. Uh, Is it an action novel? Is it more of a character uh, develop developed novel where we are there's a lot of intrigue between the characters just in dialogue and thought uh, or is it a combination i would say it's a combination of there there are duels there's a festival and a contest between swords and helmets there's matchlock firing there, there there's a great deal of action but it's not the action does not drive the novel. The novel is character-driven, but there's enough action to appeal to those who want action, and there's enough character to appeal to those who want their characters well-rounded. None of my characters are cardboard characters that just have a little bit behind them. These are fully developed, well-rounded characters that one can easily imagine meeting and speaking with. Even with all the focus, uh, you know, as you put it, an incredible reliance on honor, duty, and loyalty placed even above life. Obviously, they're, I guess these characters also reflect the flaws in human nature because there's so much conflict. They're 
there isn't uh, loyalty amongst all of them or or of honor amongst all of them. Well, that's true. But Hideo and Kobayashi are loyal to each other. Hideo remains loyal to Mariko, even though she's been forced to break off the relationship. But uh, there's certainly no loyalty on the part of Lord Arima to the Shogunate. And that drives much of the action in the novel. He is not loyal. He is loyal to himself. He believes himself to be superior to Iemitsu. He has nothing but contempt for the Shogun. And he even demonstrates contempt for the Shogun when the Shogun's personal representative, Lord Ishido, the Shogunate executioner, or Kaishakunin, comes to Aramis province for the festival. All of the action in this book takes place within 24 hours. It's one day in the life. Oh, all right. I didn't realize that. That's uh, that's, that's very intense then. It, it was done that way or designed that way to be easily understood as all the action occurs in one day. There's backstory, not only to the char- characters Hideo and Kobayashi, Lord Arima, but there's backstory back to the Shimabara Rebellion. But all of the action in the novel takes place within a 24-hour period, from morning till morning. One morning in August, on the hottest day of the year, to the next morning. And during that time, everyone's life changes, from Iemitsu's to Hideo's to Kobayashi's to Arima's. Some people, their lives are enriched. Other people, their lives are diminished. It's a universe within a universe. I'm sure it was a great challenge to get all the historical detail accurate. That was a great challenge, and uh, I think I was up to the task. If I failed, I would be delighted to hear from readers who are very good at discovering any sorts of anachronisms or inaccuracies. But I did do my best. Michael, tell us how to get your book. The book is available on Amazon.com, and it's available on BarnesandNoble.com, and I believe it's available directly through iUniverse. Well, we appreciate you sharing all the insights and the inside information on your book. Thanks so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio, Michael. Well, thank you, iUniverse, for the opportunities that you've offered me. That was Michael R. Zamber. He is the author of his book, Shogun Iemitsu, War and Romance in 17th Century Tokugawa, Japan. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.